Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. My name's Jeff Gamble, I'm your host, and today I'm joined by two guests, uh, Justin Nordstrom and Tim Seitz. And our subject today is going to be the game A Few Acres of Snow. Now, by way of introduction for this podcast, I do want to say that uh, uh, for those of you who may not be aware, uh, Tim has been extremely active in the Board Game Geek community, and uh, in particular in regards to this game, and is one of the people who detected a flaw in the game through his play, um, where it was revealed that there was a, a dominant strategy uh, that the British could use in this game. Uh, that would make it so that uh, the outcome was almost always a certainty uh, as a British win. Um, now, Tim has agreed to talk with me about this game uh, because we wanted to try to move past this fact. And uh, I, I do have to say, at least my personal opinion, uh, is that it is a fact. The, this, uh, this strategy called the Halifax Hammer, it does exist. Um, from everything that I've read, it seems like it is a certainly a real thing, and Tim's plays uh, more than, than solidify this as a fact. So we're not going to spend time in this episode debating whether or not there is a dominant strategy that, that breaks the game. Instead, what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at the game um, from a more sort of holistic standpoint, we're going to take a look at why the game, even despite its flaw, may be something that is noteworthy, and we're going to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the game and perhaps what this game may mean for future games and future game design. So with that introduction out of the way, I want to introduce uh, Justin. So Justin, how are you? Doing well, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Not a problem, not a problem. I, I appreciate you agreeing to come back on, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, I know you have a lot more experience with this game than I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you're, you're currently experiencing the game because you that's and right. Tim uh, have set up a game uh, that you two are going to be playing while we're recording. So that's a, a suggestion Tim came up with that I thought was kind of fun and fantastic, and maybe it will add some more talking points for us as we go through the podcast. Uh, and maybe Tim, Justin can explain how I just ambushed him regular infantry <laughs> how did that happen well, justin so so the way that happened is that uh, i put my infantry in the reserve box to get it out of my hand and i had known that tim drafted native americans but i was dumb and i didn't do anything about it so now they're back in my hand however they are the free infantry so it's not going to be that hard to get them back fantastic by the way, by the way i think it's uh, worthwhile to note that uh I'm better known as Out for Blood. So the people that are listening that are interested in the game will recognize me by my username rather than uh, my sobriquet. Very, very true, very true. And, uh, Tim, I want to thank you as well for being on the uh, podcast. And uh, uh, by way of introduction, uh, um, can you tell people a little bit about yourself and perhaps what it is that has driven you to play this game as many times as you have? Um, well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, first of all, I want to say that I am honored and humbled, and that's actually a difficult thing to do, uh, by your invitation to, uh, uh, to bring me on board here to, for this episode. Um, I am a uh, former military officer uh, living in Richmond, Virginia, and I uh, love games, been a gamer all my life, and love the playing of games. And, and like any good uh, gamer, I love uh, unraveling the puzzle that is a game. And I think A Few Acres of Snow is a great puzzle to unravel, um, even if it does have the flaws that it has. 
Oh, fantastic. And uh, um, thank you for your service. Uh, let me say that, uh, first of all. Um, and secondly, um, back on the game topic, can you tell me about how many times you've played A Few Acres of Snow? Do you have a number? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I've actually stopped logging games. Um, I'm part of the uh, uh, Geek Chat list, uh, the Geek Chat League um, and uh, one of the things we do is every week we post our games and uh, the, the number we play. And it was getting quite annoying because I'd play, oh, yeah, I played uh, Trajan and I played Mage Knight and I played 30 games of A Few Acres of Snow. Um, so people got tired of hearing how much I played A Few Acres of Snow. Um, but I've probably played well over 600 games. Most of those are on uh, Yukata or Yukata or however you want to say it. Um, I think it's a fantastic online implementation for the game, and anybody that has an interest in the game should should go and play it there because not only do, can you play the game, there's a lot of good players, but there's also ways to customize the game. Yeah, you know, so that's... that's a little plug for them. I, I'm not getting compensated for this. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, in reality, I've only played probably 20, less than 20 face-to-face games. Okay. Um, most of my games were on Vassal and uh, in it kept back in the day, and then when it, when it went online on... Uh, Yucata. Um I uh, just been playing the crap out of it. Um, okay. Partly to, I think uh, it's interesting kind of backdrop. Uh, partly I was urged to get on there and prove my point and show, you know, back up my talk. Um, so I did, and I got on there and played British. And uh, what I expected was, you know, a win ratio of ninety percent or so. Um, what I didn't expect was to win every single game uh, as well, British. Um, Tim. So. Tim. First of all. It's totally your turn. And second, um, <laughs> I wondered if you could, you know, I've read a lot of the posts, many of them by you, about the Halifax Hammer, but there may be some people out there, this relates to Jeff's intro, that don't really know too much about the game or about what we mean when we say Halifax Hammer. So maybe a good starting point could be, could one of us, and I'll be that person if you want, uh, describe the game for those that are not familiar with it, and then what we mean by the Halifax Hammer. I think that sounds like a fantastic idea, um, and if you would like to be the one to uh, do that, because you can also kind of give us the historical backdrop for it, I think that'd be wonderful. Oh. Okay, so just, if you haven't played the game, um, A Few Acres of Snow is a two-player card, uh, a deck, say deck-building game that is designed to reflect some of the historical material surrounding the British and French colonization and conflict in North America. And the even though the, the box says French and Indian War, and even though the title of the game comes from this famous comment by Voltaire that upon losing Canada, the French only lost a few acres of snow, it, I think you, you'd have to say that it's not really a historically driven game. It, it reflects broad abstract ideas and i think really does a nice job in the abstract but if you're you know if you've played gmt's wilderness war and you open the shrink wrap on this game i think you're going to find it to be a very different game would you guys agree with that oh i think definitely yeah i mean uh in the level of of detail like when you think about Mm -hmm. wilderness war and Mm -hmm. the event cards um you know that that really kind of immerses you in that time period whereas this this really has none of that so um, that I think I think if you if you try to picture in your mind uh, Dominion, a game of Dominion, a game that I think most listeners would be familiar with, that is played instead of just building cards and collecting other cards, you're playing cards in order to change the game, uh, the, the the pieces and components on the game board. That would give you a, some idea of what this game's about. Um, but 
So this is where I want to transition to Halifax Hammer Time here, Jeff. I want to begin by commenting on what our game is doing here. So, Tim, I think you may be selling yourself a little bit short because you are doing some things in your game here that I was totally not expecting. And when you talked about the 100% uh, win percentage here, I have been, when I see people play as the British here, I see them doing some very different things, and, and I, I see your play here as very uh, very highly developed. Well, so, I, when, I, when I play French, I see British players doing very different things as well, and that's why I actually mm-hmm. um, win 90% of my French games as well. Okay. Um, well, so well, that's I, actually I think, a question uh, I was going Despite gonna, there being was, a, a broken strategy and a Halifax hammer, there's, um, it's not an easy tightrope to walk uh, between mm-hmm. the two towers. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, is there even is there one Halifax hammer, or are there many? Because frankly, I was expecting on your very first move uh, for you to settle Halifax, and you didn't. Um, so that's old I, school. That's oh, okay. Uh, so I'm I'm behind the learning curve on this. Yeah, that that's old school. Uh, with uh, back when you could reserve locations. Um, that was two mm-hmm. actions to clear your deck. Um, now that you can't reserve the locations, you have to get the governor. Uh, that's why my first action is always to get a governor. Okay, so, you know, Justin, you bring up an, an interesting point, and Tim, you do as well, which is that, you know, this is something that is evolving over time because the rule set has been changed. And, you know, you and I talked a little bit uh, last night, Tim, when we were trying to set up for this, you know, in, in my personal disappointment, and I've expressed this to Justin as well, that, you know, uh, to me, uh, the change in the rules where you can no longer put location cards in the reserve kind of kills some of the game for me, at least as I had played it and I had enjoyed it. Um, you know, so it sounds as though that as these um, fixes, these patches have been uh, applied, it, it sounds as though uh, there's still ways around it, yes? Um, yeah, definitely. So, in fact, the second edition um, is marginally easier for the British to win directly than it was in the first edition. Um, there's a couple of reasons why we can, we can talk about that if you want, but, uh, I, the, the, uh, the changes, uh, led me to believe that, um, Martin doesn't understand the game as well as the players do. Um, and that's kind of a frightening and bold statement, but this game is, I think, complex enough that, once you get it designed, you have to play it in depth in order to really understand all the permutations that the cards enable you to do. And as a designer, do you expect the designer to go through all that? Or do you expect the designer to lay out the canvas and let the players develop those permutations and explore that world? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, you know, one puts the responsibility solely upon the shoulders of the designer, whoever he or she might be. Uh, the other, uh, basically, the designer has to sort of admit that anything that they create uh, may have flaws and may have problems and then be willing to accept from the uh, gaming community, uh, you know, the, the, the customer, consumer, however you want to look at it, that, you know, hey, uh, I've played this game 500, 600 times. I've found some things out that you and your playtesters might not be aware of and be okay with that. So, you know, I kind of think as a designer, you, you, you have to kind of make a choice. Your, your choice is either going to be, hey, you know, I, I'm going to exhaustively playtest this or I'm going to be willing to accept that there might be some, some things that people find. Justin? Well, I was going to say, I, if I'm hearing you correct, Tim, it sounds like you're saying that 
the fact that for those that don't know, Martin Wallace made uh, an update. I think it was New Year's Eve was when I first saw it on BJJ. New Year's Eve of 2011. Uh, uh, it came out it seemed... uh, earlier December. It actually went online live mm-hmm. on uh, Yucatan, uh mm-hmm. the 31st uh, of right. December. So it was it was released some point before that so that they could code the game. The reason I mm-hmm. know it was that date is because I was in the middle of a game and the rules changed. <laughs> um, and well, that, uh, that actually caused my only loss, which some have used to say – uh, look, he can lose. It's not 100%, but they don't understand that that was actually an exception because that was when the rules changed during the middle of the game. <laughs> well, but what I was going to say is, Tim, it seems like you're arguing that it made it um, it made it easier for the British to win in the second iteration. The, you said a different edition, but whatever you want to call it, the new implementation of uh, Wallace's rules. So, yes. And, and my guess is that that was not the intention of this revision, that it was intended to do the opposite, to make the French more competitive. Is that your understanding, too? Uh, well, I think that was his intention. I think that was his stated intention. Um, ultimately, uh, he later uh, admitted in one interview that he thinks the two-player war game um, is kind of broken as a genre or is imbalanced mm-hmm. as a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think he was he talking that, about any two-player game, Sam. That was his statement that, that I think caused so much uh, consternation and aggravation, uh, you know, is this sort of blanket statement that all two-player games are inherently imbalanced and flawed. Not flawed, but uh, I think he said inherently imbalanced. And, I, I think <clears> he was <throat> talking specifically war games because of the asymmetrical nature of the war game environment. Um so I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do believe he was talking specifically war games uh, because that was where he was he was coming from. The reason why they're imbalanced and the reason why he think it doesn't matter is because the nature of the conflict is imbalanced. And so if you look back at the historical simulation, somebody won. Um, so if you recreate uh, the conditions for that, chances are that the people who won are the people that are going to win your game. Um, and it's difficult for us to sit back with 2020 hindsight um, and, you know, the ability to see the entire conflict and go, oh, well, here's the correct strategy. Whereas, uh, you know, when you're building a simulation to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the commander at the time, um, that's really difficult. It is, and it's next to impossible to create one that's, that's you know, perfectly balanced. I'm not sure he was saying that, that all two-player games are, are imbalanced. Um, I think it was limited to the to the kind of games where there's asymmetry in your in your setup. Right. Well, I'll have to check on that because that if that that would make an enormous difference. Um, you know, I, I I don't think I could argue with that point. Um, but it, to claim that you know all two player games are um, unbalanced would, would, was something that I think you know a lot of people were challenging. So I think it would be interesting to try to find out, and, and I'll try to do that for this episode and maybe post something at the end. Uh, about what you know, what exactly it was that he said, because that would you know, of course, be a, a totally different ball of wax. Would you accept that premise as well, Justin? That uh, because you play a lot of war games, that <laughs> you know that there is always imbalance in war games. Well, I think maybe there's a difference between asymmetry and imbalance. I mean, because asymmetry is is a is something that one tries to achieve as a designer, and and I think that's one of the more intriguing parts of this game or frankly, any, maybe many war games, is the asymmetrical nature. Uh, um, however, that does not necessarily mean imbalance. I mean, to me, imbalance means, um, well, I'll interrupt myself to say that the other way to correct for that is through a bidding process. So if, over time, the consensus becomes that one side is 
frankly easier to win or has an edge, then the way to overcome that is through a bidding process. And I'm, I want to make sure we get back to that because, uh, Tim, I was going to ask, have you ever been to the WBC up in Lancaster? I, I have not, but I, I okay. know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, the um, I was actually, there is a tournament, a few acres of snow tournament, and the... I'll, I'll briefly explain what they do as a bidding process and then kind of discuss whether you think that, A, that's a good implementation, and, B, in, in general, I'm curious what you both think about the kind of fix-it-yourself uh, mindset. You know, Tim mentioned at the beginning that there are these different variants on Yucata, and um, I wonder if that's both a mark of a, a good game or if that's a problematic in gaming. But let me just talk about the uh, the bidding process. So I contacted the, the GM for A Few Acres of Snow, uh, in Lancaster, and he said that what uh, what his group does and what he's doing in the tournament is he's uh, allowing players to bid for sides, and what with they're what bidding with what currency. I'm sorry, can you say that again? With what currency? Yeah. So what what you're bidding with is an uh, the ability to discard cards from your hand and draw new cards from your deck. And so let's say you're doing it with poker chips, and you would say, well, I want to bid one point to be the British. And then your opponent would say, I want to bid two points to be the British. And let's say you accept that bid. That means you get two poker chips that you can, at any time in the game, toss aside and then draw a card from your hand and then discard that card into your discard pile. And the GM that I spoke with briefly, he said, uh, you know, in his mind, this levels the playing field and makes it more, um, I guess, competitive. Um, now, Jeff will put this in the show notes, the link to the uh, – uh, uh, it's just boardgamers.org if you're curious. But uh, he'll put the link to the show notes about this bidding process. So I guess I, that raises in my mind two questions. One is, A, do you think it's a good idea? And then, B, what do, you, what do we make of the fact that A Few Acres of Snow has so many um, variants or different rules, some of which were created by Martin that I guess now are just mainstream that are part of the game? And others that are created by Yucata users, or I guess in this case, a kind of homemade bidding process. What, what do you guys make of that? Well, I think you go back to uh, the question of is there a problem when a game has um, imbalance that needs to be corrected? Uh, so, one of the uh, complaints about Twilight Struggle, um, you know, back in the day was that the, the USSR is a little overpowered. And so often you would see people bidding victory points for the right to choose who they start with. Um, is that a problem for a game, or is that something we should expect? Um, and I think, uh, given my experience uh, in the, the, the game balancing world, primarily with video games, um, is it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to balance a game uh, 100% so that both sides have equal chances um, statistically. And so do we expect the games that we buy to be perfectly balanced or do we expect the games to be great systems and brilliant designs that maybe require some additional play by uh, you know a vast pool of gaming experts um, that uh, can find and uncover the strategies that they're going to dominate and then hmm. apply fixes to that on the back end? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good question, uh, Tim, and, and it's one that I think, you know, maybe we need to answer is, is that idea of, you know, do, you, do we expect or do we need a perfect game? Um, you know, and I think a lot of people who come at games uh, like I have from a more Euro standpoint uh, expect a game and its systems to work 
and to be, you know, relatively flawless. Uh, you know, I don't expect to see problems in a game that I buy. Um, now, that being said, I, the, the first episode I ever did was on Thunderstone. Now, I, I, I know you're wondering where I'm going with this, but one of the things we talked about with Thunderstone was the fact that there are problems that everybody seems to have with that game design. Everybody wants to tweak it. Everybody wants to change it. Everybody wants to do something to it. And one of the conclusions that, that Jim and I came to when we recorded that episode is, you know, maybe that's actually a, a, not just a sign of weakness but a sign of strength that people care enough about the game and like the game enough that they're willing to actually put the time and effort into that. So I, I'm wondering if that's the same kind of thing that applies here to A Few Acres of Snow, where, you know, you have a game that's been demonstrated that there's a definite problem with it, and yet people are still willing, like yourself, to try to test it, play with it, try different things. Um, so what do you think of that idea? I mean, is that really more... Does that speak more to the quality of the game that people sort of maybe seem to sense? And when I say quality of the game, I mean the, the ideas behind the game. What, what do you think of that? Well, I think there's two... Uh to kind of do the work of a consultant-led segment, I think there's a couple different audiences here. One, um, Martin Wallace fans. Um, Martin Wallace has very uh, adoring fans, yeah. and they love his games, and they want his games to do well. And, um, you know, I think there's an emotional attachment apart from the quality of individual games by themselves that, that and I don't want to say fanboyism because I don't think it's that. I just think he's a, you know, he's, I would say he's a brilliant designer. He's got a great track record. And um, the possibility for his name to be sullied by uh, the uh, kind of the impact of a few acres of snow is there. And I think people are, you know, willing to step up and defend that. I think then there's also the, um, you know, the, the sort of folks who look at, you know, the game as, you know, it's a brilliant design apart from Martin Wallace. So let's take Martin out of the equation now. And this is a very interesting application of deck building, um, so to speak. Yeah. And so it's taking the traditional deck building in a completely different direction. I think I say completely, but, uh, you know, you've got games like Mage Knight now that are, are doing things a little bit different. But if you go back and trace um, the original Dominion game and you look at the games that followed immediately after Dominion and you, and you, you know, brought up Thunderstone. Yeah. Thunderstone was a Dominion clone. I mean, pure and simple right off the top. It essentially had exactly the same mechanics. Um, a lot of the same card powers. Um, you just had a different theme, um, and a slightly different scoring mechanic. Um, but essentially it was, you know, it was a Dominion game and a lot of the, the follow on deck building games were essentially that same mold. This is a game, um, that completely shatters the mold. And when you think one way to think about that is, would you ever start a Dominion game by drafting an estate card? Um, probably not, because it, it, it is not going to be, it's, it's going to ruin your deck, it's going to slow you down, and it's going to probably ensure that you lose. But when the game first came out, the, the, the arguably the best first move for the British was to settle Halifax, which gets them a couple points. Um, and so right there you can see, hey, wait a sec, this game is different. Um, why do I want to go settle Halifax? 
um, you know, why do I want to do, uh, why do I want to go settle Albany or settle Halifax? Well, it was because the cards were location-based. The cards enable you to do something else. Um, the estate and dominion doesn't enable you to do anything. Um, it's just points. And so now we have cards that, that the location, the spatial elements on the board are interrelated to the cards in our hand and essentially our army location. Uh, when you think of it from a war game, um, the maneuver is based upon, you know, where can I go? Well, it's based on the cards that I have in my hand. And that's actually really uh, intriguing. And I think from a from a pl- game player perspective, that's a fascinating design. And I want that design to work because I want to be able to play that game. Um, and I love playing that game, but I don't want to play the game where the conclusion is for, you know, the, the, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. Right. That's actually a point that I was going to make that I sense a change that occurred in my own play when I started reading the, the BGG forums about this and probably saw your messages, Tim, because when I first started playing this game, I, I played it like a race game. And for me, it was about, you know, for those that don't know, there's different ways that you can achieve victory in the game. You can either for the British conquer uh, Quebec for the French, you can conquer New York or Boston, or for both sides, you can use up all of your uh, settlement cubes, basically building small settlements, uh, or you can use up all of your discs, essentially building your settlements into larger cities. So uh, when I first played it, I would just try to race, and uh, I really think that one of the changes that, that happened for me um, I mean, back when we thought the Halifax hammer was something you bought at a Canadian hardware store, uh, the idea was that, you know, that that's that's when the game changed for me. Is that it was, you know, a it went from being a race game to being a one based really on conflict. In the past, when I played, conflict was something you used to slow the other person down so that you could win the race. And that's I, I think that's been the biggest. A mindset change, if you will, uh, that I've seen in, in this game. And I also think it's been, you know, this gets back to the idea of different editions, but, um, you know, Tim, could you talk a little bit about how you use rating when you play this game or what the rating rules are and how they changed in the other edition? Um, okay, so in the first edition, um, the rating rule was that you could spend a rating card to raid a lo- an adjacent location, and that was connected by... Um, one of the Indian paths or by the kind of building path that, along the river. So if the cards were, were, were connected, and there was some confusion uh, on the map about which locations up in the north were actually connected, um, but, but they, uh, they addressed that. The, uh, you could add additional rating cards or uh, certain cards like the priest um, to extend your rating range. And so if you spent you know, those cards together, you could raid you know, a significant distance. Um, uh, the problem with that is rating is entirely uh, useless if the person has a blocking card. So they can block it with one card. So if you spent you know, three cards to raid all the way up to Pemaquid um, from Quebec, then they could block it just by either having the Pemaquid card or by having a blocker like a, an Indian or a, a fort. Um, and if you fortified a location, that meant you couldn't raid it at all. Um, in the second edition, uh, you, they, they changed the basic rules to you can raid – uh, two di- two two locations um, from I'm sorry you could rate a distance of two uh, for your first card and every subsequent card was was one extra space um, that I think the intention behind that was to make it easier for the French to raid uh, because they have a they have a intrinsic advantage in Indians they have a free Indian that can't be uh, taken with the uh, Indian leader card from the British um, and they have 
the free uh, Courier de Bois. Uh, I call them the CDB. Uh, they have that free card, which also acts as a raider, whereas the, the uh, equivalent British card costs, costs five coins to buy. Um, so they have an intrinsic advantage in raiding. And so I think the thought was, hey, this is uh, will make it easier for the French. The problem with raiding is it's inherently a bad strategy, in my opinion. Um, it's extremely difficult, especially when you're playing against the thin deck, to actually ever get uh, – a hit on either raiding or ambushing for that matter. Um, I do use ambushing. Um, I do use raiding, but I only use it when I have a hundred percent or close to that, uh, chance of success. Um, for example, in the game we just played, um, I won the siege at Halifax and immediately turned around and raided Port Royal down. Uh, I'm sorry, won the siege of Port Royal and, and raided Halifax, um, because he had, he had had his courier to walk card on the siege and he had Halifax in his uh, discard pile, which I could see. It was in his discard pile. So uh, that means, yeah, I'm going to raid you, and I'm going to get rid of that location so I don't even have to go through a siege. Um, but in, but uh, as a tool for the French, raiding is just ineffective. And the reason why the second edition is easier for the British um, is because now they can actually have they have an alternate attack path down to Quebec. Um, so you can go from Pemaquid, um, you can settle Fort Halifax, now you can immediately attack the capital, Quebec. Uh, Quebec is by far the most important card in uh, for the French uh, because it, it has a lot of money on it. It's their only settler. Um, it also has military and it has a ship. So that card is vital for the the uh, French. And if you if you raid it, even if they block it, the card comes out of their deck or at least comes out of their hand, goes into the discard pile. If if they if you raid it twice successfully and the card is gone, they're stuck. <laughs> they have to go buy a settler and they have to try to resettle. Uh, Quebec. And so that creates immediate difficulties for the French in the game, because not only do they have to protect against the military threat of the Halifax Hammer now, they also have to protect this new threat of uh, raiding down from Pemaquid. Right. Um, and, and, so, and if I'm understanding you correctly, Tim, you're saying that the whole reason that this works so well for the British is because of having constructed a thin deck, yes? So that basically, you know, uh, almost all the cards that you need at all times are either in your hand or they're going to be in your hand uh, very shortly, Yes. Yeah, so when when you're playing a traditional thin deck, um, one of my uh, – so here's a spoiler, um, and you can turn your, your headphones down if you want. Um, the first opening move is to get governor for British, and then the next opening move is to get money and buy a Indian. Uh, and the reason I buy the Indian is because that protects me against raiding, but it also gives me the opportunity – to raid, uh, but it, it also protects against ambushing. So now I can buy military cards um, because my deck is smaller to start off with. That Indian is going to come into my hand in one, maybe two, uh, two turns, and so French have to immediately respond by getting their own raid and ambush defense, um, and so that causes kind of immediate consternation on the part of the French because of this. So uh, the, the the thin deck strategy certainly you know seems to work and 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 well I shouldn't say seems to work it does work. Um, my problem with the thin deck kind of uh, strategy is that to me it's entirely unthematic. It, it doesn't kind of make any sense to me. And and this is this is where you know again I, I think sometimes one of the things that we can do is we can look at games from the perspective of the person who's playing it. In that, you know, what is that person actually looking for? And I was kind of looking for this sort of thematic experience, whereas you were able, Tim, to kind of dissect down to the nuts and bolts, the heart, the engine of the game, and figure out a way to, um, you know, optimize 
your deck to the point where it became this just ultra efficient machine of winning. And, you know, I certainly can't sit here and fault you for that. Um, you know, most people play because they want to win. Um, you know, you don't have to win in order to enjoy playing, thank God, because a lot of times I don't. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the time I don't. But, uh, you know, it is the goal. So, but, but the disconnect for me with the thin deck strategy is it makes the game then wholly unthematic to me. Um, and, and I guess the parallel that I can draw here is something I had actually posted uh, in response to one of your posts, Tim, which was it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Dominion, which is that you know when I first started playing Dominion, because maybe I didn't have any CCG background, I looked at it as just wonderful sandbox that I was playing in, and I was just kind of like checking out all of these cards, and my deck was huge and bloated, but my god, it was fun, because, you know, I'd string together these ridiculous turns of eight, nine, ten cards, and, uh, you know, ultimately, it's not the way you want to win the game. And what I found out later is, you know, no, 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 you know, try to get a lean deck, try to get money. Money is what's going to win. And when I found out that that is correct, and I tried it, I mean, I've now played games of Dominion where all I use is a chapel, and oh my gosh, I mean, I can, I can, I can blitz through that game with just a chapel and a couple other cards, and but it took some of the fun out of it for me. You know, it, it kind of turned it into something that was all about efficiency and optimization, and I personally didn't enjoy it as much. And it wasn't until my kids started to play it that I started to really kind of enjoy it again because they, of course, are not approaching it from that level of sophistication. And we kind of got back in the sandbox, as it were. Um, Justin, I, I need you to stop clicking the mouse, man. Because oh, sorry, man. It, I'm it, playing the game. Holy moly. <laughs> are you hearing you, that, Tim, you, or is it just me? It's like there's a you, cricket. You asked me to play the game. I don't know. <laughs> I can't move the, the little cursor. Are you hearing this, Tim, or is it just uh, me? I, I could hear it. Holy there were quite mackerel. A few it's like click, there, so. click, 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 click. <laughs> anyway. Uh... <laughs> you want me to play the game or not? <laughs> No. Uh, we yeah, can just sure. cut it out and just say sure. Tim won again. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, what, what do you what do you say to that, Justin or Tim? I mean, does anybody have anything to say to that? I mean, I, I know that that's that's a, a different way of looking at it. Um, you, you know, and and the the idea that different people are coming to games with different expectations and uh, different things that they want to do in order to enjoy the game. Anybody have anything to say about that? So uh, let me jump in here. I, I approach games, you can tell by my username, uh, Alpha Blood, I approach games with the idea of winning. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Serlin's article, Play to Win. The, the point of the game is to create a structure for, for players to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the fun in the game is not playing against the game or playing a new game and trying to figure out. The fun in the game is playing my strategy against my opponent's strategy. Right. And I don't have to win to have fun. I have to try to win to have fun. And so playing a game where I'm not going full bore is not an enjoyable experience. A pat, you know, it's 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 you know, it's like sitting around talking about football. Some I do and I can have fun with it, but it's not playing a game. Right. Um, and so when I play a game, I'm playing to win. And so when I, you know, people say, "Well, why don't you just not do that strategy?" I'm like, "Then why even play the game?" Right, right. Right. What's the point? Uh, the point of the game is to figure out the best strategy and right. then see if your opponent can counter that with his best strategy. Right. Um, and when the when the when that question is a foregone conclusion, that that's when the game doesn't become fun anymore. Right. Exactly. And and, and you know that that's something that you know I, I I hear and I totally get. You know the idea that 
once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. And that's kind of why uh, I, I sort of approached the whole Halifax Hammer thing. And, and one of the reasons why you know, I, I wanted to discuss this with you is because I have maintained a position of willful ignorance. I, I, I don't want to know about it because if I know about it, then the game becomes a foregone conclusion. If I happen to discover it by myself, which after this podcast, you know, uh, with the spoiler alerts and everything, I'll probably have a much better idea of how it works, then that may take something out of it. And then, you know, like you said, if I'm, if I'm going to play the game, because we all, I think, play the game to win, um, but it, it's, you know, like you said, you found this optimal strategy that leads to this ridiculous success rate for you. So... It wouldn't be fun. Uh, and, and once the genie is out of the bottle, um, you can't put it back in. So for you, Tim, to play this game in any way other than you play wouldn't make any sense for you. Um, do, you know, but like I said, I kind of have been willfully ignorant about it. And what would yeah, be your I, thoughts I about that? that? Not everybody is like me uh, when it comes to games. Some right. people like to play games just for the, the social aspect. Of, right. You know, sitting around a table and, you know, puzzling over an outcome or having some, you know, you know, giving an opportunity to kind of give your, your buddy some grief. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's, you know, that, that's, it, those are all completely valid ways to enjoy games. Right. Um, this is just for me, I play games um, for the enjoyment of the competition. Right. Um, and if I wasn't playing games, I'd be playing golf or I'd be playing racquetball or I'd be uh, throwing darts. But or I, you know, I'd be, res- you know, when I had it, I had a border collie um, back uh, a long time ago, and and I would actually create games that my border collie and I would play, and believe it or not, this is embarrassing <laughs> to admit, but I would keep score on, on the games that my border collie and I would play, and did the border collie beat you? Set up the rules, but 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 I would set up the rules not so that I'd win every time. I set up the rules so my Jenna, my border collie's chances of winning. We're about equal, and we would play for hours. We play. We had a basketball game down in the down in the basement, and um, I would spend hours playing this basketball game against my dog, trying my <laughs> darndest to win, <laughs> and um, having a blast the whole time, trying to figure. And I actually learned how to dribble a basketball better than I ever dribbled before because my dog, the competition with my dog, taught me. Um, and, uh, so if, if you're not trying your heart hardest, um, I think you're missing out on what a lot of gaming has to offer, um, at least, at least for me. Right. Um, and so that's, that's how I approach games It's just, uh, you know, let me try my darndest to win this stupid thing. Um, and let you try your darndest to stop me. Um, because right. that's what, that's where the fun is. Well, what would you say to that, Justin? Is that, do you agree with that? Or do you approach it from a different standpoint? What, you know, what, what do you look for? Well, I think there's two things going on here. I think part of it, it we, we touched on earlier about talking about the wargaming genre. You know, if this game was, if there was no conflict in this game, if Wallace had taken out all the infantry and siege artillery and so forth, um, and it was just about colonizing and, and it was more of a, a standard Euro-style game, I think that, I wonder if Tim would have the same approach. I mean, without getting into a huge tangent about the, the benefits of one style over the other, I think it's clear to say that Tim's mindset of, you know, wanting that intense competition, again, not 
not feeling, if I'm hearing you right, Tim, you're, you're not saying that winning is everything, but trying to win is an important part of enjoying the game. I think that yeah, mindset is probably more characteristic of uh, people that play a lot of war games. And so one of the both, I think... Uh, that's interesting. I never thought of yeah, that. Yeah, I think yeah. one of the both excellent aspects of Few Acres of Snow, one of the reasons that I was so excited, this is actually the first game I ever pre-ordered. Um, and, and I remember checking to see when it would be, make its way across England. And one of the reasons I was so enthusiastic was I felt like this was a, a war game that non-war gamers would play, that Euro gamers would play. And, and I think that this game got a lot of attention, not just because of the pedigree of the designer, although that was part of it, but I think also because of that. It, it was If you like Dominion, you'll love Few Acres of Snow. If you like Wilderness War and other car-driven games, you'll love Few Acres of Snow. And there, I can't think of many games that have promised that type of crossover appeal. So Let, Let's I, open I think, a new can of worms. Is A Few Acres of Snow a war game? Uh, geez, now this is going to be like a five-hour-long podcast. Um, yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's it, it's conflict simulation. There's conflict simulation, which to me makes it a war game, even though it's so very abstracted. Well, right. I mean, what all war games are abstracted, right? I mean, so uh, there isn't the level of detail or you know reference to history, but absolutely, I think it's a war game. Well, where do you come down on that, Tim? Um, I am schizophrenic in this. I think it's. Uh, absolutely a war game um but it's absolutely not a war game um so there's it's definitely a, a game you know it's, it's chess a war game right uh, you know uh not in the way i classically think about war games so, you know I, I grew up playing hex and counter war games with my dice and my crts and my uh, you know point decimal rules um but uh you know this this takes you know for the, me this is kind of the uh, it's it's like a, a Wuro, you know, or a Waro, or however right, you want to say. Right. It. Um, and, and this isn't the first game that Martin Wallace has crossed the genre lines. No, no. Uh, I mean, I've it, I've played it, Gettysburg, uh, and uh, Gettysburg, I think, was one of his first, wasn't it? Well, actually, did that come uh, before? What I'm thinking of is Pericles. Oh, okay. Uh, Pericles yeah, yeah. was a, just a pure area majority. Yes. Uh, you know, Euro with a CRT and dice <laughs> on the back end of it. Um, so, you know, is that a war game because it's got a CRT and you're fighting battles? Uh, or is it uh, a Euro because it's area majority and, uh, and, uh, and you know, abstracted conflict with victory points? Uh, right. So Martin Wallace is great about blurring these genre lies. And, and, and so the question is, do we – should we try to classify it or should we just accept that it has elements of both and just say right. here's the roots of this game and here's kind of the antecedents of this game? Um, you right. know, clearly yeah. it's influenced by – um, Dominion, yeah. because it's you know it's got some deck building elements, and clearly it's influenced by card driven war games because it has you know squares on the map where we put influence markers. Um, but uh, you know what is it really? Well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it, it is you know it has elements of both, which I think is why I was so excited for the game. You know, because, you know, it's it also promised a quick playing time and, and many other things. But it got a lot of notoriety. I, I want to circle back to something that Tim mentioned earlier when you talked about the fact that, you know, uh, maybe some of the pushback that people have been writing about on BGG has to do with the designer yeah. or the fear that, you know, to criticize this game um, is more significant because Wallace is the designer. And I'd be curious to hear if either of you think that uh, this game would have gotten a different reception if someone that no one, no, a brand new designer, no one ever heard of made this. Right. I'm, I, I kind of feel like 
Um, this is one of the games that makes me feel disappointed. And again, it goes back to the, the race element. Tim, I'm, I'm guessing based on what you were saying that if my five-year-old went over to your house and, and busted out his markers as he's wont to do, and he, and he, he scribbled all over 80% of the game board, uh, it really wouldn't matter because you you play in a specific way that really has you focus. Do you ever settle a location? I guess that's a question I'd have for you. In your kind of optimal playing style that you were describing, right. is settling ever something that you do, or does that just clutter up your hand? I, I settle Halifax occasionally. <laughs> but but only so that you can attack Louis Borg in Quebec, right? Uh, yeah. I, it, so if you get you say, so, there's another question. Let's go kind of go back to the uh, the genre classifications. It, so maybe a, it's questionable whether it's a war game. Uh, is it a deck building game? Um, and I, I'm you know actually probably on more side on the fence that it's not really a deck building game because there's no way to build your deck. And if you think about the way the cards work and compare it to Dominion, um, there's only one card that actually improves your deck, that builds your deck. Um, all the rest of the cards hurt your deck and hurt your ability to do multiple strategies. Um, and so the one card you want to get is home support. Home support is universally good. It's always a good card to have in your hand. Um, pretty much anything else is bad. I mean, you could take Boston and New York or your are your are British, you know, best locations because they have a ship, they have military, they have a settler, they got three coins. Um, everything's downhill from there. I mean, Halifax has a ship, but it has no money, um, so it, it can only be used for the location itself uh, to you know to, as a launching point, um, or it can be used as a ship. But it's 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 not like uh, New York or Boston. And so you're you're uh, you, you really wish and the same thing on the French side. You know, for French to be competitive, they really have to settle. Um, you know, they need to settle two more locations and develop out. Uh, well, if they settle Fort Frontenac, they just reduce their ability to defend militarily. Um, so Halifax becomes, you know, the natural place where they need to settle because they need to be able to protect Halifax and protect Nova Scotia. But they also can't fill their hand with junk. Um, and Fort Frontenac becomes junk if the British decide to attack. So, you know, getting back then, Tim, to Justin's question, like, do you find yourself really only focused on that peninsula on the map? Um, it depends on the game. So when I'm playing uh, either side, the, I know that the battle is going to be fought over Nova Scotia. Occasionally, when I'm the French player, players will try to come down Fort Halifax and raid Quebec, and so I have to be cognizant of that and try to defend that. You'll also see some British players um, come down Albany and try to go to Fort Stanwitz and Oswego and to, to kind of settle Fort Frontenac and block you in. And if they do that and fortify that route, then that could be trouble for you. Um, but usually, if they're going that route, they're filling their hand with crap, and the, the, the French become able to win via military. I call it the Pemaquid pile driver um when you when you come through when you come through pemiquid because uh the the french are said I, I played somebody uh, just two days ago and they did uh the kind of old strategy that was originally posted is oh this is broken um was uh get some money and then buy both settlers on your second turn um so they got right. some money they bought both settlers and you know it was an easy cakewalk because they had no money and they had a handful of settlers and settlers don't do much against uh, regular infantry very true, but it's it's funny you mentioned that because you know I think I've actually done that move. I've I've tried to take those settlers away from the French player, um, you know, playing it the way I was playing it. Um, so yeah, it, so it sounds like you know again you you have that laser like focus, and you've kind of proven that 
you know, these other sort of ventures of settling and whatnot actually end up sort of making your deck less efficient by choking your hand with cards that you don't need. Yes? Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the things that, um, for me, ruins the theme. I'm not a, I'm not a, a gamer who, uh, and especially when it comes to games like this, I'm not playing the game or looking at the game from, did does this recreate the historical simulation? Um, I'm looking for, does this create an opportunity for me to, uh, you know, compete with a competent opponent? Um, and so I'm looking at, you know, d- d- so with the fact that I, you know, you know, whether I have to attack Quebec through Louisburg, Louisburg, however you want to say it, um, that's not all that relevant for me. And so when we were looking at what, how can we fix this game, there was this element of, well, it has to be a historical fix. Uh, that's, that's not really my concern. My concern is creating an environment where it's fair and balanced. Um, and so if, if the British could, could, uh, could you know settle Albany and Deerfield and create a better economy, which enables them to build better military? Um, that would be cool, uh, but that's not how the game's designed. Um, and and so when you say, well, you know, how come you don't settle? Well, I would like to be able to settle if settling and building an economy, uh, kind of like, would enable me to project more military, which is what you think kind of thematically should happen. Is is I de- if I developed all my cities, I'd have a better ability to. Uh, you know, to raise an, an, an army or better able to raise money, but that's not how the game works. Um, if I exactly. do anything, it seems like you're saying it's counterproductive. my ability. Um, what was that again, Justin? Oh, I'm sorry, I talked over you, Tim. That's my bad. Just to add on what you said, it seems like you're saying that developing those areas is counterproductive to your military development. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So it, it, that's just a function of the game as a as a deck building game, right? If I fill my hand with stuff that's not directly related to um, military, it's uh, it, it reduces my ability. It makes my, my my hand go slower. Baltimore is an exception. I can settle Baltimore and I can use that as a coin. So if I have say uh, uh, you know Boston or uh, say like New Haven, uh, Philadelphia, which I'm going to end up keeping in my hand. And Baltimore, I can get away with dumping, you know, three of my, you know, starting military cards into a into a siege, but I, I rarely settle Baltimore because it's just as easy to buy a ship. Okay, so um, Justin, I want to go back to I want to circle back around to your question, which is, uh, if I'm remembering, you know, what you said, you said you were curious as to whether or not the sort of blowback about this game mm-hmm. and and what has happened, how much of that is attributed to the fact that. You know, it was Martin Wallace, um, mm-hmm. and, and and whether or not we would hear the same level of sort of uh, uh, discourse and examination and dissection as if it was somebody who nobody had heard of and this was their first game. Uh, I'd like to take right. a run at that. Um, sure. I, I, I personally, you know, my guess is no, um, because a first-time designer making a game like this, I don't know that it would have garnered the attention and the hype in the first place that would have brought so many people to it um, to begin with. Uh, I also think that, you know, there is definitely something to be said about the the Wallace fan. Um, you know, I am a Wallace fan. I, I own lots of his games. But, you know, I also am sort of of the opinion that, you know, maybe there are some of these issues and problems in multiple games. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, Tim, I don't know if you've ever played it, but Justin and I played God's Playground. 
Um, God's Playground, uh, you know, I kind of had to get. I'm Polish, and so I'm like, hey, look, it's a you know, game about Poland. Instant buy for me. Um, and played the game, learned the game. It was very difficult, but very rewarding. Very intense, deep experience. Really enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed the sort of cooperative nature. In this game, you're trying to defend Poland, uh, who seems to be getting attacked from all comers, from all sides, all the time. Um, and so the players are trying to work together to defend Poland, while at the same time, uh, competitively building up their own sort of holdings and estates, which is going to garner them victory points, which is going to help them win the game. Yeah? All right. Justin found a, a, a kind of a loophole. Uh, this is called building Jesuit schools, I believe. Was that what it was? Wasn't it Jesuit schools or Jesuit academies? That's what it was, yeah. yeah. It was building Jesuit schools, which is a minor action. It's like one of 21 different actions that you can take in the game. Um, and, and those are just numbers I'm picking out of my head. But there's a lot of different choices, um, as Martin Wallace a lot of times likes to do. And so there's this one little thing where building Jesuit schools, you build a school and you get yourself some victory points. And the more of them you build, the more victory points you get. And Justin, you know, sort of honed in on that. He saw that. He's like, ah, okay, I can do that. And I can do that over and over and over. And I can let Poland rot. I don't have to participate in helping defend it. As a matter of fact, if I don't defend it, everything that my opponents are building is going to be burned to the ground. And I can just ride this horse to victory. Now, I remember playing it with him at the time and being kind of annoyed at that. But he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, that was part of the game. It was it was a rule in the game. He found that. Um, and, and you can say that he gamed the game or whatever it is you want to call it. But I, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing here. You know, you found a weakness in the system, Tim. You exploited it. Uh, you found out a way that you can, you know, uh, have a strategy that's going to get you to win. And, and I kind of found the same thing with God's Playground with Justin's strategy. Now, I don't have a huge amount of experience playing that game, but it does stick out in my mind as another example of, wait, you know, maybe this wasn't play tested as much as it could have been. Because I can't believe, I mean, that was Justin's first play, and he found that. And you told me, Tim, when we talked last night, that you had played a few acres, what, five times? And you kind of had the core ideas already for the Halifax Hammer, yes? Um, so I, I had the core ideas for Halifax Hammer as my uh, playing partner explained the game to me, which was, wait a second, why can't I just keep attacking and, you know, buy military? Um, so, in fact, when he was explaining the game to me, um, I was set up as the French because he said, oh, French are easier to play. All you got to do is develop out. And most people think it's, it's easier to play the French. And as he finished the, the, the rules explanation, I said, you know. I think I'd prefer to play British my first game. Do you mind switching? And he says, oh, no, go ahead. Um, I think they're harder to play, though. And uh, so we switched. And uh, ironically, I won the game, but without a single siege. Um, it, was a, it was a race game. But uh, by the time we played again, uh, which, was, which was around our fifth game, I, I said, I think there's a problem. And, right, uh, right. and uh, we, we, we talked about it afterward. Um, so but, I think uh, that, yeah. So the, the question then is, okay, if you, this is an you know, interesting kind of norm for the for the community, which is how do you respond? What's the appropriate protocol when we discover that we think there's a strategy in the game that's that's exceedingly difficult to beat, or imbalanced, or dominant, or broken, um, and kind of those uh, in those spectrums? You know, do, do you do you do what uh, the fellow that that originally posted on this, which is, hey, I'm having trouble beating this strategy. Can anybody help me? Um, 
and uh, that's what kind of what sparked the thread. And I'm using capital letters. Right, right. What are your thoughts on that, Justin? I mean, I feel as if the uh, the race element of the game is a lot is a lot of fun, and I feel like you know, I, I guess I don't have any information about whether the game is broken or. Um, I wouldn't adopt Tim's out for blood strategy, but I guess I can say that it um, it's limited my enjoyment of the game. Tim and I are actually in, in midway through our second game here. Just to, in case you're keeping track at home, uh, Kim, <laughs> Tim clobbered me in the first game, and and now I'm going through this sort of long Baton, death, death march. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're at the stage of the game where I'm I'm barely holding on, and he's about to destroy me. So, I mean. I feel as if the, as I said before, the the whole game board is really irrelevant. You could have this game board on the back of a postcard, and it could have you know maybe six circles on it, and that would be the whole game. And so I, I feel as if there's something missing there. Right, and, right. Um, game designers yeah, I, take I do, note: a few acres of snow, the card game. There you go. That would work. Now, but but again, don't you think though, Justin, that gets back to to Tim's earlier question, which is, you know, okay, so who bears responsibility for that? Because if it's Martin Wallace that bears the responsibility for that, then uh, you know, you you use the word disappointed, and and I think mm-hmm. then people would definitely have a right to feel disappointed because, yeah. you know, we 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 went into this venture, you know, buying this product playing this game expecting one thing and then finding another um and and not not finding another just as in uh maybe maybe that's a wrong way to put it you know it's not that you're expecting one thing and finding another it's that you're expecting something that is not going to be uh uh broken or solved depending on what word you want to use so no I, i guess i disagree i feel like you know there's been plenty of games that i just stopped playing because i'm bored of them you know and and that's that doesn't make me feel like, well, I, I didn't get my money's worth out of this game or this designer's terrible. I just sort of outgrow it. Right, and right. maybe this is just another part of that. You know, it's going to speed up the process by which I tire of the game. But I don't I don't ever learn a game or buy a game because I expect to be entertained for the rest of my days. I, I buy it because I think it's, it's an interesting design and I want to explore it. And, um, I mean, even though this part of um, – so this feature of the game has limited my enjoyment of it. I still think it's an innovative design, and I still think it's a good way of bringing together deck building and conflict simulation. I just wish, you know, when other designers do this, I hope they'll, you know, develop from this a right. kind of, you know, t- kind of what Tim was saying, a greater and more intense uh, playtesting so that, you know, Again, these kind of makeshift changes that are that have been happening uh, won't won't happen as often. Right. And maybe that's a pipe dream on my part. I think that's part, why that's this game is a must-play game. Um, and I know that's kind of a bold statement, but I think anybody who's interested in deck building as a genre um, or kind of the Wuro, the Waro as a genre um, needs to play this game. One, to understand what Martin Wallace's kind of insight was here and from a design. Um, and I do think it's a brilliant design um, to uh, understand what the limitations of it are um, so that when, when designers go back and they, you know, kind of take this to the next level. And when Martin Wallace himself takes it to the next level with his, uh, you know, forthcoming four player version of this, um, understanding, have a deep understanding of the kind of, uh, things that this mechanism brings to the table, but also the limitations of the, of these mechanisms so that 
we build out a game that works the way it's intended. And I, and I, and I keep saying this is a, you know, I think it's a must play game one because of the controversy, uh, because the designer, um, Martin Wallace, uh, you know, has a great track record. Yeah. Why did this game win awards when it has such a fatal flaw? Well, um, that's, that's another great question, but I think it actually is answered by what you just said. I think that there is an inherent sort of, uh, um, feeling that, you know, this game, was an important next step and, and that despite the fact that it's flawed it it is taking things in a different direction and and i would love to know um you know i just did a a, a podcast episode about uh, mage night and you know there's a lot to my mind at least there's some similarities between mage night and a few acres as far as how you're using deck building to interact with a board and it's not just about building a deck by getting more cards to add to your deck. And it seems to be following, at least in my mind, a little bit in that in that sort of vein. And I, you know, I don't know if if uh, uh, Vlado Shavadal, uh, you know, was looking at a few acres of snow when he was working on Mage Knight. It's my understanding, um, you know, from talking to Paul Grogan, that you know Vlada was thinking about Mage Knight back when he made Prophecy, which was ages ago. So you know, I don't really know where that came in, but I, I think in answer to your question, though, Tim, it, it really does have to do with the fact that despite all the controversy, despite uh, that this flaw. Or, you know, perhaps flaws. I mean, who's to say there's not something else out there? Um, you know, there are also few games that have gotten this much concentrated play and attention. And I think that might be something to do with it as well. Um, but I don't think there's any doubt that the game was innovative and different. I think maybe that's why it garnered so much attention as far as awards go. Yeah, I also um, just want to highlight, you know, one of the questions you can ask is, well, Tim, if this game doesn't work for a you know a competitive environment, why have you played six hundred times? Right. Um, the uh, the game has you know there's stages here. You know, I, originally I played it because it was fun, and then I played it because I was testing it out to see whether it was broken. And then I was testing it out to prove that it was broken. Um, <laughs> then I was fending off comers who were trying to challenge me and tell me that it wasn't broken. And I'm like, fine, let's try it. Um, then I was started playing the French to see you know how can I play. Uh, you know, can I, can I, how can I do against, you know, some of these people? And, uh, and, and now the game has, I think, evolved into this, um, brilliant metagame, um, where you can choose your, choose your rules. Um, there are now scenarios on, on Yucata, um, that you can, that you can, uh, try. And actually the, the best version of this is where you can set the rules and then you can have your opponent choose which side he wants to play. And this is almost the ultimate, Meta game in that how how well do you understand the game? How well can you uh, uh, respond to a change in the rules on the fly? Um, and that's kind of what you're then testing is whose understanding of the game is better. Um, and of course, obviously, it's you want to try to pick a set of rules that are balanced enough so that they don't just walk all over you. But then, but then you want to try to win despite that uh, that handicap. Right. Right. Um, so do you think then that these scenarios that are being posted and, and these different tweaks, I mean, does it, does it make the game work again? Does it give it some legs? Or is it really just an intellectual exercise to try to find out whether or not uh, the game is still broken? Um, I, I say yes to both of those. So the game for me has always been an intellectual exercise. Um, you know, can I defeat my opponent? That's right, like an right. intellectual exercise. Um, can 
uh, is the game broken? That's an intellectual exercise. You don't know how many hours I spent uh, playing against myself only because I couldn't find you know, opponents that were uh, of sufficient caliber from an analytical standpoint to sit here and just play over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and go through all these different scenarios. Right. Um, and, you know, that's ideally that's what the play testers are doing. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't, we don't know what the what the play test environment was for Martin Wallace. But, you know, were those people doing that? Uh, you know, right. I think play testers should should be out not to test the game and see whether it's fun. They should be out to break the game. Um to say, how does how, you know what does the game pass the, uh, the the competitive test? You know, is it would this game work as a as a game that you could play competitively in a tournament without some sort of fix? Right. Um, so, do you so, think though that that you know this? The, do you think though that that Martin Wallace himself though just returning to that earlier point uh, uh, that I brought up because he is who he is, it garnered so much attention and focused so much attention on the game. Um, do you think that that may be one of the reasons why uh, that that this was discovered? In other words, going back to Justin's point, if this was just somebody else, some other guy who made a game, do you think it would have been played sufficiently by enough people for that to be found? Now, that being I said, so. yeah, you think? I, I think so. An, an example um, is uh, Panic Station. A game right. with a you know an un, well relatively unknown design team, right? Um, uh, you know, had a lot of buzz because it's an interesting theme and had some great art and cre- you know its intent was to create atmosphere. So it's not really a strategy game, um, you know, in the in the in the strict sense. Um, and then and then the rating started to drop and people started to say, well, this game doesn't really work. It's not thematic. I can't see my. Why does this go? Why does this work this way? Um, this is broken. All I have to do is just, you know, the the humans just have to trade, you know, gas cans. Right. Uh, right. You know. So absolutely. Then, so then there were fixes that came out, and there was another revision of the rules. Um, and uh, you know, in fact, I, I uh, one of some of the most thumbs I got on a post was I posted the uh, a FedEx ad to to his like third iteration of the rules, um, and uh, I got a lot of laughs out of that. But uh, the uh, you know. Is the, is it should a game ever be done, or should we expect a game, especially an innovative game, right. to uh, to be a work in progress? And do we allow that? I think uh, in the case of a few acres of snow, um, people were initially resistant to that. How dare you question Martin Wallace's uh, game design skills? Um, do you think you know this game better than him? Uh, you know, it's not about that. It's about you know, it, it, should a game be perfect when it comes out the door? And I think the, I think personally, I think it's impossible. So the question is, how do we as a, as a community respond to that? And how do we, how do, how do game designers take steps to be responsive when it happens? Um, and I think in case of Panic Station, they did a good job. They, they rewrote the rules. They went and attacked the game. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, if you lose that initial buzz, people say, oh, yeah, that game doesn't work. So, no, right. no, no, it's been right. fixed. Like a lot of people don't know now, there's two two ways to play the game. There's the random rules generator that Martin Wallace uh, kind of had as a promo in Italy, um, in the Italian in an Italian edition. And there's a um, now you you can set your own rules. Right. Like so, if you think the game's broken, come fix it. Right. right. Come set, come propose a set of rules, um, and that's what then becomes a fun game. Is uh, it's you know it definitely has brought new life into the game because now you can you can play a bunch of different scenarios. Would you um, accept that though in another game? I mean, you know, Justin, let, let's let's go to you. I mean, we we talked uh, I talked with you about Paths of Glory, you know, would you accept a game that, you know, you had to fix? You know, would 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 that be something that 
you would be willing to do, or would you be disappointed in that? No, I think it's. I, I agree with Tim. I think that it's it's part of a game's evolution, and I've got so I got two thoughts on that. Um, when we did the Paths of Glory episode, the award-winning Paths of Glory episode, um, <laughs> the uh, you know I, I mentioned that there had been a, a lot of criticism. Um, well, for one thing, there'd been several just revisions of the rules and clarifications and so forth. Um, and I mentioned that many people felt that the game was a historical, and so the designer put forward a historical variant, and then other people further refined that, and then still others uh, developed a wholly different variant. And so I think that's just a natural part of the uh, uh, game's development. And I'll actually circle back to what we're talking about. Uh, there's a fantastic book called The Birth of the Chess Queen. And so my first thinking was, well, you know, a, a classic game like chess, for instance, that, that game has been unchanging for, for years, centuries, right? Well, not so, right? Because the way that the queen moves in chess that in and of itself had changed. And I can imagine a group of people sitting around in maybe medieval India talking about how the game of chess was broken and how they needed to develop <laughs> something to, you know, to counter the, you know, the chessman's hammer or something. And so I, or it I, was I an expansion, like, the queen expansion. Yes. Well, well, well we had yeah, it was, right. it was it an expansion. expansion and it was right, sold, right. you know, for a very reasonable price. Um, right. Uh, and so Jeff will put in the, Jeff will put in the show notes, a link to that book. Uh, the, uh, the Dude, you're the really making game. a lot of work for me. Uh, Jeff will put I in know, the show what notes. I, what uh, I, Jeff what will I do this. <laughs> nice. Uh, the, the author's name, by the way, uh, Marilyn Yalom, Y-A-L-O-M, who describes this. And so, yeah, if, hey, if chess, this classic game, can be open to innovation and uh, rules reinterpretation, then, you know, who should say that a game like Few Acres of Snow, which has only been out for two years, you know, can't, can't do the same thing. And, and I, I guess I'm with Tim and saying that it's it's not a knock it's not meant to be a knock against the designer right. or against the game and, and frankly I'll, I'll point out again for our listeners that um, Tim's being fairly modest here when he simply says, well, he simply stumbled upon this rule and that's all there is to it. Um, my guess is, Tim, that you've refined, as each of these new rules iterations has come out, you've refined your play and, and you've, you've dedicated you know, hundreds of games to developing this strategy. I, I can say that in our very first game, I knew by my third move that I had lost. And, um, you know, I don't think it's just a matter of, you know, flattering Tim or anything. I think it's just a matter of, you know, the game rewards study and intense repeat play. And I think that's something, regardless of your thoughts on, on this one, that's something we expect games to do, right? We expect games to reward experience and, uh, and continued play. I think we'd all agree to that, right? Yeah, so, Justin, I think uh, if you have know does reward uh, repeated plays. I, you know, my record, I think, is evidence of that. Um, I have noticed improvements in the people that I have played against. Um, uh, there's been a number of folks that I've played several series of games with. And so definitely their understanding of the game increases the more they play. And so I think in the case of Fear and Snow, it does reward that. Um, what, what this kind of tees up the question is how do we, uh, how does a game you know, generate this this uh, ability to have legs. How, do, how what, what inspires longevity in a game? Um, is it uh, this skill reward, or is it um, presenting new strategic challenges to an opponent? Um, some games tackle this, like Kalis tackles this with a random setup of the initial tiles. And that's the only luck or variability in the game, but it creates a different experience because uh, where you know where the stone tile is is changes how the game gets off and how it starts and therefore how it develops going forward. Is there a significant difference in having different components or diff different initial conditions 
um, such as in Kalis, or different endgame conditions, such as in Trois, where you have a, a, a scoring card, um, or a few acres of snow in its online incarnation, where you have a different rule set uh, that you might pick from the start. Uh, you know, are all these valid ways of creating uh, interplay variability, so to speak? So uh, basically, then, my question to you, Tim, would be, uh, do you equate longevity with variability? Because it sounds like all the things you're describing are related to variability. In other words, if there's variability in the rules, variability in a scenario, variability in endgame condition, or in initial setup, that's going to lead to uh, different situations and allow the game to unfold in different ways, which is what's going to create uh, that longevity that you know we're, we're talking about is one of the things that I, that I try to focus in on in the podcast. So am I correct in that, that really it's variability for you? Um, so I think ultimately yes, but I think there's a couple different sources for variability. Um, so as a, the three areas that I related before are game-generated variability. Like you're actually playing a different game, so to speak. Um, and certainly with a few acres of snow, if the rules change, you could say by definition you're playing a different game. Right. Uh, chess is another favorite of mine. Uh, I play a ton of chess, and I'm principally speed chess. Um, I'll play it over and over and over again. Um, why? Because my opponent always does something different. Um, why do they do something different? Well, because they lost the last time they did that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that you try something different. And so then I have to try something different to counter that. And so it's, it's, the, it's the opponent. So, it's the opponent right. generating variability, and that is equally valid in terms of creating variability across, you know, multiple gameplays. Justin, what are your thoughts on that? Because in particular, you know, as a person who has played a lot of war games, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of war games seem to have, uh, and I could be completely wrong, please call me on it if I am, but a lot of war games uh, that I recall seem to have a fairly static setup. I mean, they're scenario-based Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are variable setups depending on maybe if you're playing like a, a squad leader type of a game, you know, you'll have different uh-huh. scenario setups. But in that scenario, that is the setup. Or in, you know, that war game, that is the setup. So maybe war games, is that a case where, you know, Tim is talking about this idea of your opponent provides a variability? What, what are your thoughts on all mm-hmm. that? Well, I guess my thought is that that's not entirely true. I mean, there are war games where you uh, add units to the board, and that's really part of the game. But the general question about how to make a game in which there's a dominant strategy like Few Acres of Snow, how to make that continually exciting, um, I don't know if, if this is an example of that, Jeff, because you know the setup is the same. I guess your starting hand is different, so that reflects a different, uh, I guess, case. But uh, Tim's earlier point that a thin hand really minimizes the element of chance or luck, I think that's really, um, maybe it undermines some of the... Uh, uh, thematic elements of the game. I mean, I, if I remember from one of his interviews, Wallace said that the purpose of adding deck building to this specific historical situation was that it reflects the fact that there was uncertainty. You know, would the uh, you know, the French king send troops to you know uh, to help hold off the British, or you know that that seems undermined or at least really reduced by the thin deck strategy. And so I, would I mean, agree it circles back to our. Yeah, would you agree with that, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. The the uh, people talk about uh, in the in arguing against um, you know when when we were in the initial stages of is this game broken? People were arguing. Well, there's no possible way you can figure that out because there's so many different possibilities. And you know the response is no. Actually, um, you know there's a certainty about the game 
because of the thin deck strategy. You get your card, you know, you get you eliminate two of the cards. Um, now you're down to five. Uh, you know what your hand is going to look like every turn. Um, there's a little bit that's added when you start building military, but you throw that onto a siege. So pretty soon your hand is the same every turn. Um, and so that's, you know, you've completely eliminated the variability that's supposed to be inherent in the game. This notion of um, uncertainty uh, kind of completely goes away. Um, and the another reason why, uh, at least in the notes um, that he talks about, in terms of you know employing deck building was to was to simulate the supply lines, lengthy right. supply lines, um, and the original, the first edition game. Um, one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't like the uh, the home support abuse is you could purchase a unit, home support it back into your hand and play it immediately. There were no long supply lines in that situation, and uh, that's what caused a lot of the initial furor. Is that you know, you could do that, and there was no, absolutely no uncertainty about when you would get your troops, um, no uncertainty about, you know, whether you could play them or not. Um, it was immediate, um, and that's kind of what ruined the thematic element of the game for a lot of players. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it definitely did for me. So, but but you're still saying, though, that, you know, with these scenarios and with these rules changes and the, and the different setups that are offered on, you know, Yucatan or whatever, or this random uh, generator that uh, you're saying Martin uh, uh, debuted in Italy, that reintroduces enough variability to make the game still interesting for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, you know, I have a, a several opponents that I play regularly, um, and they, you know, they're often challenging me. And, and now, with the with the uh, uh, the fad is is to create a, their you know a rule set to try to be able to beat the British, and then they'll challenge me, in and then we'll play. Um, and uh, some of those are going to be, yeah, the French have an advantage, and you can actually right. win. Uh, some of those are going to be, uh, you know, who knows? And and that's part of the fun is figuring out whether the uh, like for example one of the one of the rules that you can uh, set up here is. The uh, free fur action. So either player um, can discard a fur card for a free action and earn 1.1 coin. Um, both players can do this, but it obviously benefits the French because they start off with, um, you know, more fur cards. If four cards have fur on them, right? Um, so this is, you know, this initially benefits the French. But what it does is it opens up the British ability to now settle because a lot of the cards that they would otherwise ignore now have fur on them, um, you know, as they start to go down the settling path. And so it creates new strategic opportunities, which is should I stick with the military approach, knowing that French are going to better be, you know, be better able to defend against that with the with the free fur action? Or do I try to, to, you know, exploit that new rule and go with the strategy of development? And uh, now that's an interesting question. So, and, you know, uh, so but, what, but but what I would say, uh, you know, I, I'm jumping in only because I don't want to lose this train of thought. So, But but now my question to you, Tim, would be this. Is it still a few acres of snow? Or, or, or are we really playing with the system? I mean, at what point have we left the game? At, at, at what point can we kind of say, you know what, this really isn't a, a few acres of snow anymore? We, we've kind of all sat here and talked about how you know, thematically, the game falls apart with the thin with the thin deck strategy. Justin's kind of pointed out that you know that, that much of the board is largely useless or or not needed uh, when you play this way. I mean, at what point are, are we really not um, talking about a few acres of snow anymore? At what point are we actually, uh, as a community, those those of you who are doing this? I'm not. Those of you who are doing this, are, are you kind of playing with the system more than you are the game? Well, that's an interesting question. It depends on your perspective on what the game really is. Is the game a simulation? 
um, and if you change the rules, you've ruined the simulation? Or is the game a system for competition, which the rules, the meta rules, are actually part of the competition? Where would you fall on that, Justin? I was going to say, I, I think that Martin himself did this. I mean, right? I mean, he, he added and, and altered a set of rules after the game had been out for a few months. And so, no, I, I, abs- I guess I absolutely agree with Tim that, you know, this is a, a level, adding a layer of complexity to the game. Because if I'm understanding, Tim, the idea, too, is that one person, person A, sets the rules and then person B sets the side. So there's almost a, a bluffing element to the game. And so I think anything that enhances your enjoyment of the game is part of that game experience. So, no, I don't, I don't begrudge or, or, you know, think... Uh, yeah, I'm not begrudging it. I didn't mean it as a negative comment. I just meant it right. as a, you know, I, 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 I kind of think all of us have sort of agreed that there's a lot in this design that is just really innovative and actually, yep. you know, possibly on some levels just very important in board game design in general. You know, Tim said he thought, you know, uh, new designers and, and, you know, people should should actually, this is a must play. You know, you, you have to see how this this game system was designed and how it works and maybe what future applications there could be for this game. And it almost seems to me as though all of these new things that are being done are kind of playing in the sandbox that is this game system, more so than the game of the French and Indian War. That, that, so it, it wasn't meant to be um, dismissive or, or you know, d- uh, derisive in any way. It, it, it was just kind of meant to be, um, you know, I, I am curious just from listening to how this all has evolved. A- absolutely it's added complexity. Absolutely it's, it's brought it to a metagame level, as Tim has, has described and as you've described. But I, I kind of feel that the game almost in itself has almost become irrelevant uh, it's not irrelevant, but almost abstracted in the same way the chess is very abstract. You know, it, it's an abstraction. And yeah. it almost sounds like this game is becoming an abstraction as people just play with different rule sets, different positions. And, and you know, it's almost like playing with pawns and rooks and queens. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm off base on that. But it's something that uh, is striking me that maybe people are so fascinated with the game system and the ideas that they're just having a ball playing with it and, and tweaking it and seeing what they can do with it and where they can push it. Yeah, I think yeah, your, I uh, your chess analogy is apropos because, uh, like chess openings, there are um, named strategies in a few ages of snow. And I think, you know, some of them are tongue-in-cheek. But uh, there's, you know, definitely you can tell a, a player is a certain style when they play. Um, you know, are they somebody who likes to raid? Um, do they have a raiding style? Do they get, you know, uh, do they load up on Indians? Um, or do they, uh, you know, play defensively and load up on fortifications and, and fortify and move slowly? Uh, so definitely there's, a, you know, it's, there's elements of that style and strategy exploration that you see something in something like chess as well. Sure, and I don't see anything in there that is, in what Tim was describing with the free first strategy, for instance, that is anti-thematic. You know, I don't see, you know, I don't see how it, it makes it less thematic whether you need to spend an action and have a trader in your hand or whether you could just discard them. Um, I think that you could still either choose, like Tim does, to see it as a, a, a mental competition or you could choose to think of, imagine someone, you know, I don't know, Chasing through the, the wilds of Canada to, to make beaver hats or something. So, no, I don't think it, it, either one of them is more or less thematic by making that rules alteration. So, I think it really comes down to uh, your own personal playing stuff. Okay. 
So uh, what what are you guys at the end of the day? All right, after all of this, my my friend Jim uh, asked me to ask you two a question, which is, are you disappointed in Martin Wallace as a designer because of the revealed flaw in this game, or do you? You know, what are your feelings on? I mean, when he asked me that, I said, you know what? No, I'm not disappointed. Because going back to what you said, Tim, I don't necessarily expect perfection. Um, I'm surprised when I find out that something doesn't work. Um, you know, a- another thing that leaps to mind is uh, um, reading the post about uh, the Mansions of Madness game. Apparently, there's a there's a situation you can get yourself into where you get into a closet and you cannot get out of it, no matter what you do. And and it the game just ends there. You can't do anything. There's no way yeah. to get out of it. I mean, that would be disappointing to me, and I would. But but looking at the design side of it, you know, I still enjoy Martin Wallace's games. You know, I, I still look at Tinner's Trail, for example, and, you know, the, the, the whole way that it kind of immerses me in tin and copper mining in Cornwall. I mean, who would think that I would ever even be remotely interested in a game like that? And, you know, the problems of water historically, you know, flooding the mines. And, I mean, it, it, it's just I still really respect him as a designer despite – this problem. So I want to open that up to the two of you, Justin. I know you're not mm-hmm. a huge Martin Wallace fan, and that you don't own a lot of his games. You've tried nope. uh, uh, quite a few of them, though. However, with me um, and and mm-hmm. some, of course, yourself. And and then I'd like to hear you know what Tim has to say about that. As far as are you disappointed by him personally as a designer, or do you think that you know it, it's really ultimately not that big of a deal? What, what do you think, Justin? Well, I would make the observation that we just spent two hours talking about this game, and I don't, I don't usually spend that kind of time talking about games that I really, I really hate, or talking about games that I see as irrelevant to the hobby or, or anything like that. So, um, no, I, I feel like the very fact that it's generated so much um, discussion and uh, it speaks to the game's innovation. I guess that's the comment I would make. And, and we, we noted that earlier. I would say, no, it's not a disappointment. You just think that, you know, like I said, games evolve, uh, people's playing styles evolve, and, you know, I, I don't, will this game still be played, you know, avidly uh, five or ten years from now? I don't think, you know, any of us could say, but I do think it's made a contribution to the hobby, and I, I see that as the significance uh, more so than, you know, whether this one rule was gotten right, or, you know, I, I guess I'm seeing it from a more big-picture perspective in what it's contributing to the hobby. So, no, I, I still think it's an innovative, important game to the hobby. Tim mentioned that earlier, so, no, that that's kind of my final conclusion on the game, is that, you know, it's um, maybe it's not a flawless game, but it's uh, it's an innovative and important one. Yeah, I, uh, I I come from a different perspective. I'm not a uh, I'm not a huge fan of Martin Wallace. I like some of his games. Um, I don't play a lot of his games regularly, uh, so I'm, I'm looking kind of side up you know up at my uh, wall here. You know, I've I've played Brass a couple times. I know some of my friends love it, absolutely love it. Um, so I can't say I'm a, I'm a huge uh, you know Martin Wallace fan. Um, I do think that uh, you know. So was I disappointed? No, because I didn't have any expectations. Um, and my initial thought actually was, this is a brilliant game. And I, uh, you know, my initial rating of this game was a 9, 9.5, because um, I thought it was a brilliant um, innovation and adaptation of the deck building mechanic uh, to a kind of maneuver warfare. So I respect Martin Wallace as a designer. Um, however, I think he's a relatively... Uh, 
uh, let me, I don't want to use a bad word here, but I, I think he could improve as a developer. Um, so I think all the issues that a few snow has are developer issues. Um, I don't think it was play tested, you know, sufficiently. I think this is a pretty, um, uh, immediately apparent strategy, or at least, you know, this is the obvious choice that a deck building player would make is let me try to thin my deck and see how that works. Um, right. and, uh, so, you know, I, I've, I've already commented publicly about, I think this game wasn't play tested sufficiently, um, in quantity or quality of opponents. I think those are important elements, but it goes back to the question of, you know, is that critical? How, how do we think that's going to, that, uh, that needs to be done. But, um, you know, I think, you know, will this game be played 10 years from now? Uh, probably not, um, only because somebody, maybe even Martin Wallace himself, and I know he's working on this, will come out with the next generation of this game, which takes the core brilliance of the idea, which is using deck building tied to, you know, spatial locations mm -hmm. um, to create the next level of game. Um, and I think his new game right now is called Mythtopia, and it's so you know it's uh, for uh, two to four players, um, and it's set in a fantasy environment. Right. But it uses kind of the same engine uh, as a few acres is though, which is you know cards that uh, allow you to maneuver, cards that allow you to build things, cards that allow you to to build an economy, cards that allow you to play military. Um, that approach, which I think is brilliant, uh, and a brilliant application of just you know pure deck building. Um, you know, we'll probably be playing some version of the next iteration where somebody comes along and says, hey, here's a game that's even better than that. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, though, you know, what, what we're all agreeing on, though, is that th this seems to be the first. You know, th this was a watershed. I think that was the word you used uh, uh, last night when we were talking before we uh, recorded uh, tonight was, you know, that the idea that you felt this was kind of a watershed game. And I think I would have to agree with that. Um and I think it, it is going to move things in a different and, and interesting direction. You know, it's very rare that you have something new, you know, uh, uh, or, or, or a different way of, of executing, um, you know, a game mechanism or, or a mechanic, you know, pick your word. And, and I think this is one that, that really did that. You know, it tied deck building to a map. And uh, I think that's going to be an important innovation that, you know, like you said, I, I hope others follow. So... Well, gentlemen, um, you know, I want to thank both of you um, for taking all of this time to uh, talk about this game. You know, I, I, I sort of felt uh, when I got the original idea to try and do this podcast after reading Jesse Dean's post, um, you know, calling for more critical review, you know, so much of it was tied into the, the, the furor over a few acres of snow. And so I, I kind of thought, you know, at some point I'm going to have to do this episode. Um, you know, realizing that I, I didn't really have the experience that clearly others did, um, you know, and, and I, I, I want to always try to make sure that, you know, if we're going to do a podcast episode that if I don't have the expertise, somebody else does. And, and the two of you clearly do. And I, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to talk to me about it. And, um, you know, I, I want to say uh, thank you, Justin, for uh, uh, not only uh, your contributing, but also for uh, apparently getting hammered. Uh, and did you use the pile driver on him, Tim, or just the hammer tonight? Um, no, no, so no, I was he, supposed he, to use the pile driver. Uh, and <laughs> he, I, I he didn't want to play. Uh, he didn't want to play British because he felt he might be even further embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> right. 
Right. Yeah. So it's not everybody. Exactly. It's not everybody that would volunteer to take that kind of beating for their friends. So I I appreciate that, Justin. (laughs) I did it for the team. (laughs) You took one for the team. I appreciate that. And Tim, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing, you know, uh, out of nowhere. I kind of sent you that email and didn't know what to expect. And uh, you've been very gracious and uh, helpful and, uh, you know, in taking your time and uh, agreeing to come on and do the podcast. So I appreciate that. Um, so not at all. I thank you for the invitation. Not not a problem. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you again, and and uh, thank you uh, out there, of course, for listening. And I also want to, of course, uh, acknowledge and thank uh, the kind folks at 2d6.org for graciously hosting the Longview podcast. And if you have any comments or uh, questions or anything related to this episode, I ask you to please kindly post your comments there, or perhaps on our board game geek guild. So until the next episode uh, i'm jeff gamble and uh, for justin nordstrom and for tim sites i want to say thank you and good night